Are there any questions about practice today? The question, or the request was for some comment about motivation and desire. What motivates you to practice? I asked her what motivates her to practice, and she said, often it's desire. Is your desire fulfilled? What's the desire to be free? So. Oh, I see. Desire to be free. Okay, now I'm getting the picture. Um, poor old English language just doesn't have the words <laughs> to talk about the desire for freedom in a wholesome sense. Because, you're right, probably a lot of us have the desire to be free. Um, however, that is not desire in the unwholesome sense. However, if there is a craving for a particular experience that one believes is freedom, then that, of course, is carrot on the stick. Craving, grasping, unwholesome. But even that, not so bad. Because if we practice, even if we initially might come for the wrong reasons to practice, once we get a taste of freedom in a moment of mindfulness, in that, we don't have to wait. I mean, we, hey, freedom is not out there, you know, at the end of the retreat or at the end of 10 years of practice or at the end of 10 lifetimes of practice. That's not where freedom is. Freedom is in each moment that we are able to be with what is appearing and not turn away from it out of aversion or grasp onto it out of attachment or, or clinging, craving. And in that very moment, there is the freedom to be with that experience, without push, without pull. And by definition of being with it in that way, we will see its three characteristics, one of them being impermanence. When that experience is gone, we are present for the next moment. We are free to be present for the next moment. We are free to experience the next moment. We don't have to wait. I mean, freedom is not way out there. 
Freedom is in each moment that we can be with what's appearing without aversion or clinging. The more of those moments one recognizes, the greater the sense of spaciousness and what we call normally freedom in one's life. So if the motivation is to be present with things as they are in this moment, good motivation. Probably not clinging or grasping or desire. But if your motivation is to get something out there, a particular experience that someone has identified as freedom, there may be some clinging, some craving, some uh, unwholesome desire. There may also be some sincere, uh, wholesome wish to be free. And that uh, motivation and practice or desire for freedom is, as every other experience is, impermanent. And so in each moment, we look, or we can look, to see what's the motivation for this moment right now? What's the desire in this moment? It's not like we had one desire or one motivation to come on this retreat. That is gone. That, that particular motivation or that particular desire is long gone. There have been innumerable other moments of motivation and desire or desire since then, even in the last sitting even right now. So, um, bring it really into the present moment, which is where practice is. It's right here, right now, this moment. And the question is, am I being motivated or am I desiring a particular experience right now? One of the I don't know where it came from, whether it was the Buddha or Joseph, but... uh, (laughs) And I don't mean to equate the two, but... (laughs) It is really important, one of the most significant events in one's life is hearing about the possibility of liberation. Which, when one first hears the Dhamma, we just first hear the possibility, our mind may be completely unfree. And the first thing it's going to do is going to grasp it. It's going to crave that experience and Hopefully it'll get you to practice, and in practice you'll learn to let go of it. But it's a moment-to-moment thing. Yeah, okay. uh, Steve, right along those lines, uh, uh, are there degrees of freedom? Uh, let me frame this this way. Uh, freedom, in the sense you talked about, in moment-to-moment freedom, is uh, dependent upon a function of the, the mental factors that you bring to bear. Mindfulness, non-grasping. But also, it's a function of our understanding. 
And my understanding, let me just put it this way, my understanding is probably not the same as Joseph's. <laughs> so in a moment, I know he, he feels aversion, so in his mind, let's go, from a place of deeper understanding, in mind, let's go, is it the same? Or are there, we're not, you see what I'm saying? I may not see all that he's saying in a bigger, see that he's seeing, in a bigger context. Therefore, I'm suggesting there may be levels of freedom. What do you think? The question or the comment is about levels of freedom. If someone with great wisdom lets go of aversion in a moment and experiences a moment of freedom, and someone with real beginner's mind, not much experience, but in a moment lets go of aversion and experiences a moment of freedom, are those two moments of freedom the same or different? I don't know. <laughs> a deeper quality of freedom or just more of it? More, more, more. More, more, give me more. <laughs> yes. I, there, uh, I think experientially there are moments when we feel more free than other moments. Um, I haven't really looked at that to know just what qualities are different in those two moments, and it might be one of understanding. I'm not sure there is a greater or lesser freedom in that moment of mindful presence. Okay. In the Orthodox Theravada tradition, as one learns to let go more. In time, certain unfree states of mind are uprooted, never to appear again in the mind. Now we could say, oh, if someone has practiced and some of these unfree mental states have been uprooted, they probably experience... I mean, because they don't experience those whole that range of defilements or uh, afflictive emotions or however you want to understand it, then they may experience... Um, I guess I would introduce a new term, a purity of mind that is uh, extraordinary. Yes. The question is, if you have a choice of practicing in Grand Central Station or the forest, which 
is it wrong practice to choose the forest? Of course not. The, you know, if you can place yourself in conditions that are more conducive to tranquility, awareness, openness, by all means, do that. Yeah, the Buddha was very unequivocal. He says there, you know, many times in the suttas, he says, there are all those trees, you know, go sit. He didn't say, there are all those marketplaces, go sit. You know, so if you have the possibility, by all means, you know, give yourself a break, do yourself a favor and um, put yourself in the conditions that are conducive to practice. On the other hand, if you're in a situation and it's noisy and it's, you know, the pipes are banging and somebody's coughing and somebody's <laughs> all that stuff. And that's where you are. That's, that's the situation. To sit dreamily wishing that you were out in the forest is not particularly good practice. That's just, you know, being lost in aversion and craving and Not good practice, but, you know, when the bell rings, uh, you could walk out into the forest if it's, if you think that would be better support for your practice. Yeah. One last question. Yes. Do you know who those yogis were when he gave those talks? <laughs> huh? Yeah. Joseph and Sharon and me and Michelle and Stephen Smith and, and I think Corrado and Larry and a few, <laughs> a few other people. <laughs> The three refuges. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, 
I know exactly how you are feeling. <laughs> there is a quality the, of tone that comes out in his talks that uh, sometimes is less, feels less supportive than mm, shaming and humiliating and putting down and, um, you know, and one has to be very careful when one listens to those talks. And um, it's helpful to understand where he's coming from, but it's also helpful to understand the particular techniques that he's using to um, what he thinks is inspire and encourage. And maybe it works for Burmese people, but for many of us, uh, it feels like shaming and, and it's uh, discouraging rather than encouraging. That certainly is not his intent. Um, so one has to protect themselves when one listens to those talks and be really um, observant of those particular mental states that you mentioned, discouragement, uh, etc., and not let them get the upper hand when you listen. But be really um, on guard for those types of feelings that come when one uses those particular teaching technique or when those particular teaching technique are used with you. Do you have any question about <clears throat> your practice? <clears throat> yes? I recognize that most of my suffering comes from thoughts. Most of your? My suffering. Yes. But I'm having trouble with the difference between abandoning unskillful thoughts and being immersed in the Okay, the comment is most of her suffering comes from thoughts and she's requesting some understanding of the difference between abandoning skillfully thoughts and pushing away out of aversion. I think the essential difference between abandoning skillfully and aversion is seeing clearly. And it sounds like you are beginning to see your thoughts but it sounds like you feel mm, a little bit badgered by them. And in an attempt to get away from that badgering, there is a feeling of pushing them away. Um, what you might try is doing a little reprogramming by acknowledging that just as the eyes see and the ears hear, whether we want them to or not, they, you know, is there anybody that didn't hear that noise outside? <laughs> you know, well, we didn't have to do anything special. 
It just, there's hearing. In the same way, the mind thinks. We don't have to do anything special. It's, it just happens due to conditions. So just like we don't really have any choice but to hear, and we see how obvious, obvious our suffering is if we try to pretend that that hear, sound isn't there. So too with your thoughts. They come due to conditions. You might try to be as open to thoughts being present as you are to that sound. Hopefully you didn't struggle against that sound too long. And in that process of opening to thoughts, there's, the, there's a couple things that happen. One is there is the recognition of the content, blah, 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 blah. And there's the recognition of the process of thinking. And you might distinguish between your awareness of those two. Sometimes your awareness will be firmly of the content. And then there is a real sense of being caught, being stuck, being badgered. And in an attempt to get out of it, we push it away. That awareness or that identification with the content Um, I was going to say needs to be looked at, but I think more accurately it needs to be felt. What, what is so unpleasant about that particular thought? Is it shameful? Is it embarrassing? Is it just strong desire that can't be fulfilled? Is it whatever, 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 whatever? Are you frustrated by it, disappointed by it? Do you judge yourself by it? What is going on in your relationship to that thought that makes it so unpleasant that you want to get away from it. When you can see that relationship to the content and come to some balance with that, then the seeing thoughts skillfully and abandoning them is really a matter of just being aware of the process of thinking and seeing how the thought just dissolves. It is impermanent, just like that sound, thank goodness. And when we uh, stop reacting to the thought as thinking or as content, then we'll see that it is a pretty transient, insubstantial experience. Now, it may be followed immediately by another one, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. And that's where we really start to feel overwhelmed and oppressed and really get disappointed and frustrated. But we do need to develop patience and perseverance, persistence, stamina. Uh, (laughs) You know, to just, okay, I see you. I see this thought. I see Yes, yes, thinking, thinking, disliking, disliking. And the abandoning is not so much a willful 
I'm going to abandon this thought that I really want to hang on to. It's more abandoning because of insight. Abandoning because you see clearly that it is insubstantial, it is transient, and it really is out of your control. Is that helpful? Okay. Good theory, huh? <laughs> it's, it's, it takes some, you know, try and try again. Practice, we call it. It is practice. <laughs> there was a question, yes. Continuing to, excuse me. I like that um, image you used of the leaf falling. Of course, we see a lot of them. When we see a leaf fall, you know, you just watch it. What's that got to do with impermanence? Really? How does that show us impermanence through, an, through a thought process of thinking. Oh, that was there, and now it's there, and it was alive, and now it's colored, and now it's on the ground, and in the spring it'll be mush. Hmm. I guess it's impermanent. Through a thought process, seeing, thinking about what is seen, we come to understand impermanence. What I and others try to show you in talking about no-self, or the idea, or the concept, or the truth, however it is for you at this point, is pointing to experience and leading you through a thought process that reveals that that experience could indicate the absence of a permanent, autonomous entity within this process. And a few of those experiences that we point to are, you know, as I mentioned somewhere recently in a talk or two, 
One is just noticing how insubstantial experience really is. When you really look at the experience of this body, and you really feel the experience of this body, and I'm sure all all of you (coughs) have had a sitting or a piece of a sitting somewhere where the body is just absolutely empty substance. There isn't anything there. It's just a sense of spacious, open nothing. Or you really, you really get your mind, your attention, right on a, a piece of the body somewhere and you see that there's nothing there. That experience, rightfully understood from the, from the Buddhist perspective, points to the truth of there's no enduring entity in the body. And if we look at the mind in the same way, and we see how ephemeral everything is in the mind, how the mind is just evanescent. It's like mist, early morning mist, and the sun shines and the mist is gone. And if you don't, if the sun doesn't shine, the mist is pretty obvious. Well, the mind is like that. If we don't look very carefully, if the light of awareness doesn't shine on the mind, it seems like there's something there, pretty substantial. It moves us around. And then (coughs) the light of awareness shines on this apparent substance in the air, in the mind, and before our very eyes, it disappears. It's not there. It's, it just uh, evaporates like vapor. What in that experience is enduring, is under your control, is who you would want to claim you at rock-bottom essence are? There isn't anything that we have experienced in the mind that has that much substance or that much tangibility or that much enduring uh, presence. So these and other experiences point to the lack of an enduring autonomous entity. And sometimes I think we get caught in this word self. And so I like to not use it, non-self, self and non-self. And rather, what do you mean by self? And often what we mean is some enduring entity, autonomous, um, free will acting thing that chooses to do. And when we understand intentions as being the acting on choice, and we really see how ephemeral intentions are, and how insubstantial they are, and how not under our control they are, then that whole idea about choice, I choose, goes out the window. It's, we don't choose anything. Conditions come together, things happen. We know it. There is knowing of it. So all of these... um, Experiences help us to uh, let go of 
this tenacious craving and grasping of this wrong view. And it is, I, I sympathize with how imp- apparently, impossibly difficult it is to experience what we think no self should feel like. Forget it. You know, anything that you say, aha, this is no self, is going to be a real solidification around self. You can be sure. So, it's, it's but this, this belief, as the Buddha acknowledged, and as we can really see, as your question indicates, this belief has, is, has been conditioned for lifetimes upon lifetimes upon lifetimes as human and as other being that just is not going to be let go of by saying, oh, no self? Great. (laughs) No, it's really a tenaciously held belief. It's so tenaciously held, we don't even know we're holding it. It is so deep down in our conditioning that we don't even know that we've got that belief. Somebody says, you believe in a self or no self? I don't know. Convince me. I'll believe you. And it's much, much deeper than that. And we just begin to see it in, you know, the subtlety of practice. You know, watching the mind, the body, intentions, feelings, all of our things that we identify with as being me. And seeing that they're all impermanent, insubstantial, due to conditions, not our control. It's very freeing, actually. I mean, it can be frightening conceptually to think, no self, what? (laughs) No way. (laughs) But experientially, it is... Tasty. So, if it doesn't, if it doesn't resonate, forget it. Don't bother. Don't even think about it. Just practice. You'll see. So let's have a day of further practice, enjoying conditions as they arise and pass away. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any questions for my esteemed colleague here? Right. 
um, right, not quite right. Um, in any moment of, the question is about hearing and what mindfulness takes as its object in the hearing process. And in any moment of hearing, as in any moment of seeing, tasting, touching, etc., there is an object, in this case sound, there is the sense base, in this case the sensitivity of the ear, and there is the hearing consciousness that ignites or springs from the contact of the three. Object, base, consciousness. Come together, contact, and hearing happens. There is no one who hears, but there is the sense base, the sense object, and the sense consciousness. Um, I'm not sure that I said to notice or to be mindful of the one who hears, but rather to notice that sometimes mindfulness takes as its object the sound. Sometimes mindfulness takes as its object hearing. And sometimes mindfulness takes as its object the sensitivity of the sense base being stimulated. Very, very subtle material or physical experience. But sometimes, in the sensitivity of practice, when mindfulness is very clear, or our understanding is very clear, then sometimes we'll notice that that is what mindfulness takes as its object. So, it's not the one who hears, but it is the, the ear base, or the eye, or the nose. And we may feel that as the contact itself. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. I just remember one time sitting in Burma, and I'm sure it's happened here too. Uh, very quietly and still, the hall was really still and quiet, and was in the midst of uh, some very good mindfulness where there was fair continuity and the experience was very subtle. And someone came in the door at the back of the meditation hall, which had a screen on it, it was a screen door, and they didn't gently let the door close, it, they let the spring go crash, and it was as if the ear base itself was <laughs> rattled. It wasn't so much the hearing, hearing, or the sound itself. It's, it was the impact of the sound on the sensitivity of the ear, which was painful. Sometimes if you've ever fasted, or I'm not suggesting you do it here, but if you're on eight precepts, when breakfast rolls around, when something you really like when you take that first taste, it just touches that little place on the tongue where cinnamon and sugar really... Mm, mm. <laughs> huh? And 
it's not the it's not the tasting, it's not the cinnamon flavor or whatever it is, cinnamon sugar flavor. Whatever it is. It's that contact with the with that sensitive part of the tongue that just kind of mm, mm, sparkles throughout the body huh? due to that contact. Without even knowing that it's cinnamon, without even knowing that it's tasting, whoa, there's some very clear knowing of that contact, of that sense base being stimulated. So, and it's not so much that we choose which one to pay attention to. Oh, I'm, now I'm going to notice you know, the, the base or the object or the consciousness. In the, notice, in the noticing of hearing or tasting, it's implied or implicit in that is uh, awareness of or noticing object-based consciousness. Does that speak to your question? Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I get, uh, it's almost like seasick, or there's kind of a feeling of imbalance. Sometimes with the body nausea, usually not. As if the meditation hall is rocking. Mm. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to rock. And <laughs> <laughs> I do that at the time. <laughs> and uh, I generally am pretty sensitive to being air sick, train sick, etc. And is this just that happening, or is there something else of just feeling you know, Vertigo, uh, the comment is about feeling seasick, a little bit nauseous, vertigo, or something, when he's sitting perfectly still, right? Or walking, or whatever. And sometimes feels like the meditation hall is on a boat. And it's kind of... Mm-hmm. What's the question? Why is that happening? Or? Is there something that I can... Um, it's not exactly pleasant, so I'm wondering if I'm... Walking, if I walk fast, it'll go away. Uh-huh. So it's not as if I need to slow down. Right. I just don't know if this is right. something that's transient. Or, or uh-huh. Stronger and stronger waves of this. Or what? Okay, the, the, the question is um, what to do. <laughs> 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 you know the answer. I'll, but I'll, I'll magnify it into a. <laughs> I'll magnify it into something besides just noting it. Uh, (laughs) um, It's pretty universal, actually, that at times we feel very fluid. Sometimes it's a real fluid feeling, and it really does feel like we, or the floor, or the cushion, or the walking floor itself, are really afloat. As far as practice is concerned, of course, we just have to notice or note um, dizziness or nausea or tipping or swaying or movement, whatever that sense of that we feel. And if there is the reaction of fear, to notice fear. If it's curiosity, to note curiosity. If we try to explain it as, oh, there must be an earthquake or something, we notice and we note explaining and etc. Sometimes the insight into impermanence is so comprehensive and so rapid 
that the illusion of solidity and stability is undermined and it is noticed. And there then is really no sense of a solid body or a stable room or cushion or anything else. And it's not like we're noticing, oh, this is very impermanent. The feeling or the experience is just as you acknowledged it. Tipping and dizziness and uh, a feeling like the floor is sloping away from you or whatever. And you might feel like you're a drunken sailor, just kind of, it's like, whoa. But it can be, at times, um, a depth of insight into the flexing nature of everything. It could also be something you ate. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So... You know, if you really want to believe you're a good yogi, it's insight. If you really want to believe, oh, that, all right, oh, it's something I ate. So, <laughs> the experience is the same. You know, you just note it. And just <laughs> you just note it and... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes, Judith. The question is about equanimity or denial. Or delusion. Delusion. Give me an example, Uh, because that's a whole talk. So give me. (laughs) (laughs) Just. process of coming to know, um, for example, unpleasant experience, something that irritates us. Maybe initially we notice the irritation, and with some continuity of our mindfulness, uh, we can begin to set the irritation aside, or let it be, and just be with the actual experience itself. 
But the irritation is just kind of sneak, trying to sneak in. But we're just, we're just trying to stay with, oh, this, is, this is really unpleasant, I don't like this, this is really... But we're not, we're not just dwelling in the um, irritation or kind of wallowing in the irritation. Then we begin to see some equanimity. There begins to be some balance. If you're, if you're really feeling cut off from the experience, then you're probably not balanced so much as in denial or suppressing the experience. If you're staying in touch with the unpleasantness, and you know it's unpleasant, and yet your mind is not wallowing in the disliking, I don't want it, I, gotta expl- I want to explain it, or anything like that, then there's some equanimity. Equanimity is quite hard to, or the balance of mind is quite hard to see as a single experience. Um, it comes in a package with many other qualities of mind, among them mindfulness, tranquility, concentration, etc. So that for much of practice, what we really notice is the stillness. We might notice the tranquility and the steadiness of the mind without really recognizing, oh, along with that is a lot of non-reactivity, which is the balance, which is the equanimity. But physically we feel very still. Mentally we can, we can see the, the steadiness of the mindfulness or the steadiness of the knowing mind. And that is really a very pleasurable experience, really, having that stillness, that steadiness. within which we see pleasant, unpleasant, mental, physical, the whole, the whole display of phenomena, and not move. The mind doesn't move, the steadiness doesn't get disrupted, the stillness of the body doesn't get shaken, and it's just stuff going by. Then we can really see that there is a lot of balance in the mind, non-reactivity in the mind. Yeah. It's um, time for the interviews and the rest of the day, but I think there's a couple of notices. One... While remaining settled in the awareness of sitting, let your attention notice whatever sounds appear around you. Letting your attention be open and receptive, relaxed.
renew your attention in each moment to notice whatever sounds appear near or far, internally or externally. without doing anything special, just attending to them when they appear. Also let your attention notice the movement of the breath as it appears at the nostrils or the abdomen wherever you feel it most distinctly. Connecting your attention to the beginning of the in-breath and sustaining your attention for as long as that movement of the in-breath lasts and connecting your attention to the beginning of the out-breath and sustaining your attention on it for as long as it lasts. Noticing the quality of movement or tingling, pressure, the sensations of breathing. It may be helpful to make a light mental note of in as you breathe in, noticing that movement or sensations, and making a light mental note of out as you breathe out, feeling that movement and sensation. We don't need to control the breath in any way, but let the breath breathe itself naturally. If your attention is called to other predominant sensation in the body, let your attention be fully with it, leaving the breath attending to the most predominant sensations in the body for as long as they remain strong, distinctive, connecting your attention to them and sustaining your attention on them, noticing their quality of hardness or aching, stretching, pressure, and what happens to it. Does it get stronger? Does it get weaker? Does it change location? Does it fade away gradually? Does it stop abruptly? By sustaining your attention on the predominant experience, you will know what happens to it and what appears next. When you notice that you have been thinking or the mind has been wandering, lost, recognize 
thinking, as planning, remembering, commenting, judging, narrating. See these two as momentary appearances in the mind, to be known and noted. Let them come, let them go, without a sense of struggle, remaining at rest in the awareness of thinking. Notice particularly the manifestations of the hindrances, sometimes very gross, great sleepiness, great restlessness, wandering mind, desire, aversion, doubt, sometimes very, very subtle, slight anticipation, subtle irritation, minimal questioning, wondering. These two are subtle manifestations of the hindrances. Also, impermanent, impersonal appearances in the mind. Recognize them when present. Notice what happens to them while remaining present in the awareness of them. If you get confused, lost, forgetful, return to the primary object of the breath, re-establishing direct and immediate contact, connection in that moment and sustaining that connection or contact into the next and the next, recognizing the quality of movement or sensation moment after moment. Remain at ease with the way things are and recognize them for what they are, temporary appearances in the mind. Do you have any questions today about practice? The question is about the use and function of walking practice. I think a right understanding of walking practice 
is supported by the understanding that what we're doing here is undertaking a training of the mind and an in-depth look at an understanding of the mind. So that if we understand the walking practice is really a mental training, just as the sitting is really a mental training, then we can see that there's really not a preference of one over the other. And I know it's hard to believe, and that one can get as mindful, concentrated, and as deep a wisdom in walking as in sitting, as in standing, as in going to the toilet, as in eating. So with that understanding that walking is as effective and uh, efficient a way to train the mind as in sitting, in one sense we can say there really shouldn't be a preference. So then we look at the other um, benefits of walking or sitting, or we look at the, the strengths and limitations of each of these practices. We all know that in sitting, we tend to get stiller, maybe a little quieter, maybe a little more um, tranquil, maybe a little clearer, maybe a little subtler experiences. And in walking, it tends to be energetic, both physically and mentally, because we have to uh, kind of guard our senses that we're not just looking around so we have to use the energy of restraint or renunciation, as Carol was talking about last night, to limit our sensory contact and to really stay with the practice of walking. Because walking arouses more energy, both physically and mentally, we can see when to use more walking and when to use less walking. If we're feeling sluggish, tired, heavy, not energized, that's the time to do more walking. If you're feeling very still, very steady, and very present, I don't mean just numb and dull in that steadiness or stillness, but really alert, then continue sitting because the energy is there for that degree of stillness and concentration. And in the, in the development of all of the five faculties, it's energy and concentration that need to be balanced. So if you are feeling over-concentrated or over-still, you need to raise the energy. If you're feeling over-energized, you need to raise your stillness or raise your concentration. So then that way we can walk more if we need more energy or if we're uh, kind of dropping into sinking mind or are just too slow and still unenergized. Or if you feel over-energized, to sit. Just absolutely sit still or stand still and let that 
concentration and stillness come up to balance that amount of energy that you have in the mind and the body. In the walking practice also, we have instructed in three, three uh, phases or three speed walking. You know, left, right, left, right, lifting, placing, lifting, placing, and lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. Those are just generic, so to speak. You can walk very rapidly just noting step, 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 or you can walk even micro, micro slow noting six or more segments in each step. So it's not that there's any right way or wrong way, but I would say walk at the pace you can be most mindful at, at that time. And that pace may change within a walking period or certainly from walking to walking or day to day. Does that answer your, speak to your question a little bit? In this, in this, in the instruction that we offer in walking, we don't pay particular attention to breathing, except we breathe. You know, we we don't stop breathing. We just don't pay attention to it, so that we use the sensations of movement in the leg, from the waist or hips down, as the primary object. Now there may. As in sitting, your mind gets drawn off into other predominant experiences, and we notice that. Come back to the breath. In the walking, even though the sensations and movement of the leg are the predominant or the primary place for anchoring our attention, our attention may be called at different times in the walking practice to things we see, things we hear, thoughts, may also be drawn to the breath. At which time, of course, you notice it. You note it as whatever it is. It's fast, it's slow, it's tight, it's loose, it's whatever it is. But not using that as the primary object and not using it as a way of synchronizing breathing and walking with you know, some kind of elaborate uh, you know, rhythm. That's a mental game that is not necessarily being mindful. It's playing a game. Can I walk at a certain pace with my breathing? Control. And we're not so interested in controlling as in being natural and noticing what is appearing. Um, I'm just wondering about um, using walking as an antidote to restlessness. Um, Would you use it in that way or would you recommend sitting and trying to get more stillness? I know when I practice, I always think, if I'm restless, I should walk faster. But in fact, it really keeps the restlessness stirred up. But you can try it, um, try for yourself, see for yourself, if when you're really restless, if walking fast tames it, so to speak, or, or allows you to get a handle on it, 
or if just standing still or sitting still actually lets the mind come into that presence of, you know, just recognizing the presence of restlessness and being okay with it. The antidote to restlessness is sukha, happy comfort of mind and body. So it gives us a clue as to the experience of restlessness being very unhappy discomfort of mind and body. That's the nature of restlessness, the experience of restlessness. Very unpleasant experience. So in whatever way you can encourage happy comfort of mind and body, sitting comfortably, standing in an unpainful, relaxed way, and then letting the energy settle into that posture and then being attentive to it. But I would encourage you to really look for yourself when restless. What, for you, is the best way for mm, not suppressing it, not controlling it, but not just acting it out either. Because in any of those, we don't really notice the way things are. We end up controlling, contracting. And what we really want to do is see the nature of restlessness. It is an impermanent, impersonal appearance in the mind, manifesting as sensations and thoughts and very restless and wandering mind. But it's, it's just a filter over the mind. So experiment. Maybe, maybe, yeah. If there is a real physical discomfort or mental agitation, put yourself in the conditions that allow or are most likely to let the mind and body feel comfortable. another day of practice. So <laughs> I guess that's what we're here for. while remaining settled in the body in a comfortable posture. Let your attention rest on your primary object of hearing or the breath without struggling to do anything special other than to notice what appears. The sounds that appear due to their conditions are known 
when we attend to them. The movement and sensations of the breath happen due to their conditions and we know them when we're undistracted. So too with any other experience that appears in the mind. Strong sensation in the body. Notice how your attention goes to it. Notices it. Recognizes it. And when it no longer commands your attention, gently redirect your attention to the primary object of the breath. When thoughts appear, when you notice them, recognize the quality of thought, remembering, planning, commenting, analyzing, fixing, rehearsing, whatever the nature of that train of thought is, recognize it without judgment, without criticism, without shame, without hurry or struggle. And when you notice that thought, notice what happens to it. Does it weaken? Does it gradually fade away? Does it abruptly stop? Does it continue? Keep noting, thinking until it no longer commands your attention. Then gently redirect your attention to the primary object of hearing or the breath. Notice also the background mental states throughout the sitting. Subtler than sensations or thoughts, these mental states are flavors in the mind. A sense of contentment or a sense of struggle, maybe a subtle simmering frustration or dissatisfaction. Maybe there's a sense of being very confident and knowing what's happening clearly. Recognize these flavors in the mind. They're in the background, but they're affecting how we feel, how we think of our practice. Recognize them, identify them, let them be there, let them leave. Notice also the impulse in the mind to shift the posture slightly or to swallow or to blink. Every movement of the body is preceded by a mental impulse or intention to move. When we're sitting still, we can begin to notice these impulses and we may or may not 
act on them. But we notice them as a brief impulse in the mind, the about-to moment, followed by either remaining still or movement. In this way, our attention notices one experience after the other throughout the sitting. Whatever you notice is okay. Nothing is off limits. Nothing is prohibited. Nothing needs be censored. Merely recognized for what it is, a sensation or thought, a feeling, an impulse, momentarily appearing in the mind due to its own conditions. I don't make it happen. I can't prevent it from happening. Mindfulness can notice that. Be at ease with your practice and be attentive. Do you have any questions about practice today? The question is about um, the sunset. What happens? Um, what happens when you watch a sunset? Right? And what to do with it? Um, first, one should notice enjoyment and continue to notice that until it's gone. And then <clears throat> if you notice that it's from seeing colors, then notice the seeing. If you have thoughts about, oh, this is really beautiful, and notice thinking. If you have sensations in the body from standing still or sitting, whatever it is, then you notice those also. And just like any other event in your life, there's a multiplicity of momentary experiences that goes into this um, thing called watching a sunset. And so there is, in, in this practice, we bring our attention to the moment-to-moment -moment experience of it. And no doubt there will be a lot of seeing, enjoying, sensations in the body, thoughts about what you're seeing, thoughts about the letter you're going to write to the friend about the sunset, you know, the planning and, you know, and then they, what if somebody sees me doing this and 
there's the bell and I'm going to miss tea and, uh, you know, and the worry. And when you really look at what watching the sunset is, it's about 10% seeing color. And it's about 90% something else. So you might just look to see how much of watching the sunset is really seeing. And how much is imagining, thinking, and other um, pieces of our, of our life that just kind of glom all together and we call it, I enjoyed watching the sunset. So, and, Uh, it's a fine line between being absorbed in the seen object and appreciating it so much mindfully that that's what you're noticing. So the, the, the middle point of just being mindfully aware of and not objectifying and not absorbing subjectively is very fine. And so you'll probably cross that line many times, but hovering around that area of staying in contact with it, feeling it, and knowing it. That's mindful. That's mindfulness. Right. Good. That's good. Not that thinking's bad, but if you're trying to watch a sunset, thinking is not seeing sunset. The comment is, I use the phrase, a sound is being known in, did I use that at the beginning of the sitting? Okay. <laughs> well, isn't that what was happening? Isn't that what is happening? A sound is being known. You can try either one. If if hearing doesn't really, you know, if that doesn't accurately or fully describe what you experience, but a sound is being known does more fully and accurately describe what you experience, then use that. It's a little bit long and wordy, so my sense is that you wouldn't use that very much. Um, it might be a way of reframing what's actually happening, but the actual experience of hearing sound doesn't have words in it. So I wouldn't, uh, you know, a sound is being known, a sensation is being known, a thought is being known. You know, it gets pretty, um, pretty noisy in there <laughs> if you do that. So <laughs> I wouldn't do that. But it is a way of reframing what's actually happening in that moment. Okay. Okay. Can do.
Yes. comment is about what's the value of knowing the quality of thought precisely as opposed to just knowing that thinking's happening? Nothing really. (laughs) If you can accurately know that thinking, whatever kind, is happening when it's happening, fine. What often happens is we individually have our predilections of particular obsessive kind of thinking. And for some people it's planning, for some people it's rehearsing, and for some people it's commenting, analyzing, fixing, figuring out, we've got our own thing. And often, that which we do the most, we're most unaware of. So, as we begin to identify Oh, here I am, figuring out again. Figuring out, figuring out. Then we can just catch that particular mental state. Hmm? Because when you, when you really look at what's, what's going on behind this, this habit of figuring out, oh, there's a little tension, a little unknowing, there's a little I want to know and, and I want to feel at ease with. And, 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 and There's a lot going on there. But the, the tagline is figuring out. That's how we get tuned into that particular feeling, mental state, um, that thing that's going on, that identity. So, as we become familiar with the top ten, it just becomes real easy to say, ah, yeah, there it is. I remember that one. There's good old number two. There's good old... (laughs) And it does allow for um, let me back up. That ability to recognize precisely what's going on is a function of perception, a particular mental state, sanya. To the degree that sanya is activated, it supports Mindfulness. Perception. That's recognition of what's going on. Recognition, clear recognition of what is going on supports continuity of mindfulness. Continuity of mindfulness, of course, results in deeper concentration, more wisdom. So we could say labeling. And this is, what, this is why we instruct in labeling. For all those who haven't yet a kind of gotten on the train of labeling. Labeling activates perception. It makes your mind, it makes the function of perception work. It makes it stronger. You know, you go to the nautilus machine that arouses and, and builds up the perception muscle. It's called labeling. And so you struggle. And of course, like any exercise machine that you step on and you, you do a couple of rows and it's like, oh my, yeah, yeah, I can't do this. I'll go to another machine that's a little easier. Just gazing, you know, sitting. Uh, I, know how to do th- I know how to do this machine, okay. You know, my gazing muscles are really good. <laughs> but my labeling muscles aren't so good. 
So we work at it, we work at it, and in time, our perception muscle is really... And in that, it supports mindfulness and ultimately wisdom. See, there's a... Hmm? Same, same. Yeah. You know, we talk about the different sensations in the body and the mind is, the attention is called to them and, you know, it's hardness, tightness, tingling, throbbing, pulsing, vibrating, whatever. It used to drive me crazy. Not only me, I think everybody that has ever practiced with Upandita. He won't let you use the word sensation. I notice these sensations. Not adequate. You have got to tell him what kind of sensation. What was the what was the particular sensation? Was it hardness or was it stiffness? Was it stiffness, pulsing? Was it stretching or pulling? Was it... You really have to be right on the experience to know the difference. So yeah, that's, that's developing perception. Ultimately supporting mindfulness and wisdom. Yeah. Yes. Briefly, I have just a few minutes. Usually thoughts just arise like clouds and, and, and hopefully float away. <laughs> Today, uh, I had the experience of a thought arose and, and I guess my mind said, oh, what about something related to, to that thought? And, it's, and it felt like a hand reached down to grab out a related thought. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Well, what I'm wondering is, what is that hand? <laughs> <laughs> this, the, the secret Buddhist teaching of the presence of God. <laughs> That hand is a vision or an imagination in the mind of seeing. Please note it as seeing, seeing. Where is the related thought sitting that is being grabbed? Well, on a day like this when it's overcast, <laughs> the hand is up there above the clouds, <laughs> and you know, all the thoughts kind of mixed together, and it knows which one you're going to go to. And it Well, we'll let that one wait for a further talk. <laughs> one, one notice.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.